Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we have a real treat. Earlier this year, I met Dr. Catherine Sharp-Landick. She's an associate professor of history and director of the Pioneers Oral History Project at Texas Women's University. And she is also a private pilot. Kate has spent about 20 years studying and writing about the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP, of World War II. And she serves as vice president of the Wingtip to Wingtip Association, which is the WASP legacy organization. The Women Air Force Service Pilots were essentially an experiment that set out to determine whether women could fly military aircraft while also assigning domestic, non-combat flying duties to women to free up desperately needed male pilots in the United States Armed Forces. The WASP actually started out as two different groups that were formed in 1942. One was the Women's Auxiliary Ferrying Squadrons, or WAFs, which was led by Nancy Harkness Love and made up of women who were already highly experienced as pilots. The other was the Women's Flying Training Detachment, led by Jacqueline Cochran, which was set up to train women to pilot military aircraft. The two were merged to form the Women Air Force Service Pilots on August 5th of 1943. During their service, these women flew 77 different types of aircraft more than 60 million miles, all within the continental United States. We've gotten a few requests to talk about the WASP, and Kate really graciously agreed to be on the show to talk about them. During our conversation, she had so many wonderful stories and insights to share that we're going to divide the interview into two parts. Today, we are going to be talking about how the WASP were formed, how they were trained, and what life was like for women who, even though they were civilians, were really doing military work during wartime. Then in the next episode, we will talk about their service during the war and then what happened after the WASP program was disbanded. So we're going to start Tracy's interview with some questions on how women were becoming experienced pilots in the 1930s and 1940s. So today I'm talking to Catherine Sharp Landick, who has spent a lot of her career working with and studying the Women Air Force Service Pilots. And so she seemed like a perfect person to help us uh, learn about these people who some folks have asked us to talk about on the show uh, so you've already heard from Holly and me kind of the basics. So what the first thing that I wanted to ask you was the first women who flew for the Women's Auxiliary Flying Squadron were already experienced pilots, but there weren't really women flying for commercial airlines at this point. Where were the women who started out already experienced to fly airplanes? Where were they getting that experience? Right. I, I think this is a great question because you're quite right. They're, the airlines were not hiring women. They there weren't that many airline jobs, and um, one woman had been hired, um, Helen Ritchie, in the 1930s, and it was more per- for publicity than anything else. So these women didn't learn to fly the airlines or, or get any experience, and they had a ton of flight time. They averaged uh, over 1,200 flight hours, the, the first 13 women, so that's a lot of flight time. Many of these women had money because uh, flying was expensive at the time, so they were able to just buy flying time. Uh, but a lot of them were able to work as flight instructors, uh, which was a really common job for women. It was not a threatening job because women flight instructors were essentially teachers just teaching flying. So it was a little different, you know, very similar and comfortable for people. Several of the women did air shows and air races. 
so they were getting their flying experience that way. Nancy Love, who ended up leading uh, the WAFs as early women pilots, uh, she actually worked for an airplane manufacturer and demonstrated the plane. That was one job the women could do was work in the in the sales side of the airplanes because then they could demonstrate the plane, you know, go out and show show potential buyers how to fly it. And the thought was that, well, look, our plane is so easy to fly, even a woman can fly it. Uh, <laughs> so they were, yeah, so, uh, so Nancy was able to get a lot of flight time that way. So it really depended on the, the woman. They all just got it as they could get it uh, for these early women. Well, and there were also women who paid for their own training so that they could join the the service, right? Yeah, so um, that's that's a real distinction between these earliest women and then the women who went through the training program, but because those early women had so much flight time, but all the women that joined the WASP had to have at least 35 hours. It started out with 200 hours. Um, and and then got shifted to 35 hours, but they all had to have some flying time. Uh, so there were two ways that that they did this. Uh, some of the women just went out and paid for their flying. They got jobs uh, at the airports and traded their secretarial labor for flying time or for different things like that. Um, some of them paid cash or their parents helped pay cash. Uh, but almost half of the women who went into the training actually learned uh, there was a program in the late 30s uh, called the Civilian Pilot Training Program. And this was a government program set up uh, in part as, as a New Deal type program to support the aviation industry. But in reality, it was uh, growing the number of pilots we had in the country because by the late 30s, everybody could see something was coming with a, a war and we just didn't have enough pilots. So the government started this civilian pilot training program uh, to train men to fly. It was it was free flight training, basically. Uh, and the way that parts of Congress who were trying to say, oh, this is a, you know, a depression program. We're trying to uplift the economy of the aviation industry. It's not a war readiness program because there are a lot who, of people who wanted us to stay neutral um, was they let women in. So out of a class of 10 of these civilian pilot training program classes, you could have one woman. And and over 40% of the WASP earned their flying that way. So they didn't have to have money. They just had to be really smart and work really hard. Uh, and so that's a way that, that you get more women who are trained to fly. When it came to actually joining the WASP, what kind of physical requirements and standards did the women have to meet? And were these different from uh, from the standards that men had to meet to join the military? Right. That's a, that's a great question. So the, the standards for the women changed over time, as it did for the men. Um, the, you know, they were patterned after the aviation cadets. And, and this is a big experiment to see what women could do. The requirements for those first women that came through those WAFs, uh, they had to be high school graduates. They had to be between 21 and 35 years old. They had to hold a commercial pilot's license, which is a level above that private license. They had to have 500 flight hours, which is a lot of, of flight time. And they had to have a 200 horsepower rating, which meant they could fly airplanes with 200 horsepower engines, which was a big, big heavy airplanes for the time. 
they had to have two letters of recommendation, uh, all of these things, where men who were hired by the fairing division at the time as civilian pilots uh, had to be between 19 and 45, had to have only three years of flight school, and only 200 flight hours. So there was a real distinction between those first women and the men who were being brought in for the same jobs. And part of this was on purpose to um, make sure that the very most qualified women were getting in because, you know, you have to have the best to prove that, yes, women really can do this. Uh, so that was, uh, that was on purpose. So the women who were brought into training, and there were a lot of women who wanted to do this. There were 25,000 women who applied to join the WASP, to join that training program. Uh, only 1,830 were selected because most of them didn't meet the requirements. Uh, but they had to be between 21 and 35, have the high school education. They had to only be 60 inches tall and have 200 hours of flight training. Um, and then they had to pass a medical exam by an Army flight surgeon. So we have all these stories of women going to these military bases and these Army medical doctors not knowing what to do because here comes this, <laughs> this you know, 20-year-old, 21-year-old woman uh, asking for a flight physical. And, and uh, it, it uh, plummets some of the, the male doctors. Um, and then these women had to be approved by a personal interview with either Jacqueline Cochran or a member of her staff. Um, so, so, and these requirements are going to change over time. They figure out that younger women, uh, just as they do the men, uh, are maybe better at, you know, being shaped as a military pilot. So the age is dropped to 18 and a half. Um, and then that flight time is dropped to only 35 hours instead of 200. And, the biggest reason for that is there just weren't enough women out there who had 200 hours. There weren't enough people out there who had 200 flight hours, uh, so they dropped it to 35. Now, male aviation cadets who were brought in um, didn't have to have any flight time, uh, but the women had to have at least 35 hours to prove that they could, could handle it, basically. Uh, so the requirements were different for the women, um, but, but they really tried to parallel the men in, in some ways. They just they could be more picky with the women because they had so many who wanted to join, uh, where the men, they desperately needed men. Uh, and so they, they, their standards were a little bit different. You mentioned that they needed to be at least 60 inches tall. I was reading, I read a lot of uh, women's remembrances of having been in the WASP and, and watched some uh, interview footage with people. And several of the women Described themselves as being really petite. There was one who talked about she was actually half an inch too short and she had just sort of stood on her, her, on her tippy toes while she was being measured, um, in the hope of getting in. And uh, like five foot two is not very tall and it's still more than four inches shorter than the average male height at this point. Did they have to do anything to modify the cockpits or the controls considering that those would have been built with a male pilot in mind? Right. Yeah, a, a lot of these wasps were short. The you know the average was almost five five, uh, especially since in the later classes they raised the the limit. And the average men at the time was five nine, uh, which is pretty small too if you think about it by today's standards. Um, but they they didn't do any modifications. These women were not going to be coddled to in any way, right? They were an experiment. If they couldn't do the job, they were not. They were sent home. 
so one of the things that the women did was they would carry extra parachutes for themselves and they put them behind themselves and underneath themselves so that they could lean be further up uh, and, and reach the pedals and things like that. So they didn't modify the cockpits. It's important, too, to remember that these planes are small. You know, even today, you know, the bombers and, and cargo planes and things like that are, are bigger. And so pilots can be bigger, you know, taller and, and just larger. But those fighter planes today and the pursuit planes and, and the lighter aircraft of, of the war years, they're, they're best suited for small people. Uh, so a lot of the men pilots who were the pursuit pilots, they were short as well uh, because it just it was such a compact space to, to get everything in that needed to happen but still make the plane light enough to be fast and maneuverable. So, you know, you see a lot of pilots in the world and many of them are short. <laughs> I love the idea that they were basically using parachutes as a booster seat. That That's awesome. Yeah, we've got lots of pictures of them carrying carrying extra parachutes across, you know, across the ramp. And, and uh, you know, some of them talk about some of the men, if they wanted to date us, they would carry our parachutes for us and, and things like that. But, but, uh, but yeah, they, they were problem solvers. <laughs> it is still incredible to me how many women went out and got their own flight training so that they could join the WASP. And this number is going to come up again. There were a lot of women who were interested in joining. About 25,000 applied. I think those numbers will probably surprise a lot of listeners. I know they did me. Uh, before we move on to the next part, do you want to pause for a word from one of our sponsors? Let's do that. All righty. Now that we've talked about what the requirements were for women to join the WASP, we're going to talk about what that training process was actually like once they were accepted. Most of it took place at Avenger Field in Sweetwater, Texas, which is home to a WASP museum today. So let's get back to the interview. Once women were accepted into the training program, what was that training program like? Right. The, the training was um, extensive and it changed over time. And, and again, it, it really paralleled the training that the male cadets were going through, the aviation cadets were going through. Uh, this program from the beginning was set up as an experiment. Let's see what women can do, it, whether we can count on women as military pilots. Uh, because when it all started, we just didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know who was going to win the war in 1942 and 1943. Uh, it, it wasn't looking good. Uh, so we really thought we might need women in all of these roles. Um, and they wanted to release men pilots. So they, they did what they knew. You know, the Army Air Forces did what they knew, and they paralleled the women's flight training with the men's. And it got longer uh, over the course of the war. Uh, they they uh, had all sorts of different training. In the beginning, um, it was 23 weeks from beginning of the program to graduation. Uh, and that included something like 115 hours of flying, and 180 hours of ground school. Um, by the end, it was 30 weeks, so it got extended quite a bit. 210 hours of flight training, 393 hours of ground school. So, you know, we have these visions of them flying all the time. And really what they would do is they'd split their day in half, where they'd fly half of the day uh, going through uh, uh, 
different different levels of it. Uh, and then they would go to ground school for half the day. So half of their time was spent in a classroom uh, learning all sorts of different things. Uh, they learned military things because they were expected to be military. They were technically civilians, but they were trained with the expectation that they would be military. Uh, so they learned military courtesy and customs. They learned drills and ceremonies, army organization, different things like that that would make them a good member of the Army Air Forces. Um, they marched everywhere they went. We got a lot of really fun songs from them uh, singing while they marched. They did daily calisthenics to keep themselves in shape. Uh, but then they had more traditional courses. They had mathematics. They had physics, uh, maps and charts and uh, navigation, basic principles of flight. They had engines. They had propellers. Um, weather, you know, physical and first aid training, and then the one piece that they all hated the most and still groan about when you mentioned uh, was Morse code. They all had to <laughs> learn Morse code, and they all did, 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 did. They they hated it, but but it was the navigational tool of the day. Uh, so they they had to spend hours studying Morse code uh, in a hot classroom in in Texas. Uh, but but so it's really. Um, this mixed day for them, and and they could be eliminated for failure in any of those things. Whether they failed the the training uh, of of the classroom, uh, or if they failed the the flight, you know, if they were insufficient flying, uh, so they were they were always on edge uh, and and desperately afraid of of being washed out. Is it true that the first class was only assigned married instructors who would sort of know how to handle women? Yeah, so uh, this was this was new, right? Using women uh, to fly these airplanes, and and there was a lot of debate. This decision to make bring women in as pilots had been debated for several years. Uh, both Nancy Love and Jacqueline Cochran had come up with these ideas and. And presented them, and the Army Air Forces was like, "No, we're not going to do that. We don't need them yet." And one of their biggest reasons not to was just logistics. You know, how do we house the women? Where do we put the women? What, you know, who instructs the women? And and are women even capable of doing this job? Uh, so when they started the training, it's like, okay, let's let's bring in married men as their flight instructors because they they will know how to handle the women. Um, and which isn't always accurate. <laughs> uh, and and uh, and and let's let's figure this out. Um, another big part of why they wanted married men or limited where on the field men could go, especially when they got to Sweetwater, uh, was they wanted to protect the women's reputation uh, because there was a big controversy about women in the military and whether they were. Um, you know, were they just chasing after the, you know, the status of MRS, right, of getting married themselves, whether they were really prostitutes, right, whether they were all lesbians, whether they were all, you know, who are these women who want to join the military? Um, the reality is they were patriotic women. <laughs> but but uh, the, this was a big part, Jacqueline Cochran especially, who ran the training side, um, she really wanted to protect the reputation of the women and to have nothing uh, questionable about th who these women were and, and what they were doing. 
And so she made a lot of rules and a lot of decisions based around that premise of protecting the, the reputation of the women and, and her own reputation as leader of the women. Uh, you know, one of the things they did in Sweetwater, which is where most of the women trained, uh, was there was a, another airfield nearby, a big airfield was nearby. And when the men figured out that there were a bunch of women pilots on the field, uh, they, they'd fly over. And then it was declared, well, you can't land on a vendor field um, without an emergency. And surprisingly enough, over 130 men had emergencies and had to have emergency landings on this airfield of all these women pilots in the first two weeks. You know? <laughs> like, how about that? You know, all these pilots. Um, so they, they had to shut that down uh, and, and wouldn't let them land there at all. Uh, and they, they wouldn't let men anywhere near the, the housing portion of the field. They called it Cochrane's Convent. Uh, because they just weren't going to have any any trouble uh, with men. The, the women, when they did the training at Sweetwater, it got very big, so you couldn't have all married instructors. But they had uh, it, was, it was strongly uh, uh, forbidden to date uh, flight instructors. Of course, amazingly, some of the flight instructors in the WASP got married. So I'm not sure how that happened since they weren't allowed to date. But but. Uh, you know, it was it was a real effort to to protect the women and a real um, the, the Army Air Forces just weren't sure what to do with with all these women pilots because they were, it was just so different. You know, they had nurses and they had uh, different groups of women in the military, of course, but but that was they could figure out what to do with them. But these women pilots, aviation was such a masculine thing uh, that that they just uh, they just weren't sure how to handle it. I love the fact that the emergency landing spiked. <laughs> I had not heard that at yeah, all. Yeah, like hundred over a hundred of them, like 135 or something. But, oh no! I, there's a story that um, that one man, you know, this is this is as the the axe was coming down, forbidding it, that he actually flew over a hundred miles with um, with his engine missing. Right. He, he knew it was missing, and he he made it miss, and he took off that way and flew, you know, past other airfields with the engine missing, uh, so he could land with a legitimate emergency. <laughs> so you know, so they, these young men were very inventive. <laughs> so while I was preparing for our interview, I read a really wonderful book called. Uh, for God, Country, and the Thrill of It, which is mostly photographs of, of the WASP and their training and, and all. It's wonderful. One of the things that was in this book was a photograph of a class of graduates, along with Jacqueline Cochran, and they're throwing coins into a wishing well. And that that was a tradition that was part of their graduation ceremonies after training. Is there a story to how that tradition developed and what it symbolized? Right. Well, I think the the, um, the story that I know uh, is that that uh, starting with the second class, uh, you know, the the WASP had started their training in Houston, and Houston was not very conducive to flight training. It was uh, it was crowded. There was no good housing, um, and the weather just. If you've ever been to Houston, the weather is not good for flight training. You know, the fog comes in, the fog goes out. It just it just wasn't wasn't a good place. So they moved out to Sweetwater, Texas, uh, to Avenger Field, which, you know, is in uh, western Texas and wide open spaces and and just just better. 
Um, and the base had been used for male pilots, for British male pilots. Uh, and so I believe the wishing well was there from those men. Uh, but the tradition for the WASP started, um, the second class graduated, uh, and uh, General Barton Yount, uh, who had helped begin the program, was there at graduation and threw a silver dollar in the wishing well uh, as congratulations and good luck uh, for the women, uh, for that first class of graduates and all who came after them. So he, you know, they put a plaque there and everything, and, and uh, um, they still have the plaque actually at Texas Women's University, uh, the, you know, him wishing them well and, and giving them this, this coin. So that became, you know, the tradition of, of tossing a coin in the wishing well for good luck before a check ride. And, and uh, after you soloed, you often got thrown in the wishing well. And it was just a way, um, there was so much tension. Uh, the women had, had a great time, but there was real tension that was always being afraid of, of washing out, of not making it through the program. So those, those little celebrations uh, become very important. Uh, and, and so to have to have the coin tossed from someone like Jack McCochran or, or from each other uh, was a, a big part of that, that fun tradition that, that they had. I was so glad to hear from Kate about this particular point. Uh, I, la- I watched a lot of interview footage and read written interviews with women who had served with the WASP. And most of them were done as part of WASP reunions or when museums were opened and uh, in one case, a parade float that was built for the Rose Parade that we're going to talk about later. And so most of the time when people, when these women were being interviewed, they were talking about um, their patriotism and their passion for flying and this huge sense of camaraderie that they had with the other women just because of the context where they were being asked these questions. And so it wasn't until this part of the interview with Kate that it really sunk in what an enormously stressful, high-pressure situation this was, in addition to just the fact that it was happening during wartime. So before we get to this last chunk of today's part of the interview, Tracy, do you want to pause again and have a little sponsor break? Let's do that. Alrighty. Not all of the women who started the WASP training program made it all the way through to earn their wings. And as we close out today's installment, uh, Kate and Tracy are going to talk about why that was the case. We haven't really talked about this, but a lot of women didn't make it all the way through the program because it was really hard. Like uh, 1,830, 1,830 were accepted uh, but only a little over 1,100 actually graduated. Right. Well, um, that's right. So 25,000 apply, 1,830 are accepted to training, and then 1,074 graduate because the, the total number of the WASP is 1,102, but that includes those WASP, those first 28 who are really highly qualified and didn't go through the training. So, yeah, only 1,074 graduate. Um, from the training program, and and it's it's interesting, and a lot of people don't realize this that um, you know the women get washed out for a number of different reasons. Uh, insufficient flying is is the biggest problem, uh, and that's that's standard. Uh, some of the wasps talk about this and say, look, there were girls who were, and they say girls, so um, 
that, that uh, were good pilots, but just it all moved so fast that they, they just couldn't keep up. Or, you know, if you get sick and you missed your flight training, you could wash back to another class, but, you know, then you're behind. Uh, so there were, there were all these different issues. Uh, the, the interesting thing about this washout rate, right, this non-graduation rate, is that it parallels the men's washout rate. Uh, and so what the Army Air Forces would do is they they based their number of graduates that they would have out of a particular class, right? There were 18 classes of WASPs. Uh, they were designated by the year they were they were going to graduate, right? So 43. Um, and the women had a W for, for women. And then, you know, 43-3 is the third class to graduate in 1943. Uh, 437 is going to be the seventh class to graduate, and it's and it goes on out, and there are 18 classes, uh, and the men were designated the same way, you know, 431, 432, 433, whatever. And if you parallel the men's classes to the women's classes, the percentage of the washout rate is the same, or or very close. And it's because the Army Air Forces were looking at the losses in Europe and in the Pacific of pilots, and guessing how many new pilots they were going to need. And so some classes have a much lower washout rate than others because the Army Air Forces thought, we're going to need more pilots. We need to graduate more pilots. Okay, let them get away with that or that. Um, and, and some classes, they have a 50% washout rate. They're like, oh, my gosh, we, just, we don't need as many pilots. Let's you know, find something else for them to do. Well, the men, when they washed out, they would be moved over and, and to, you know, and be a navigator or be a bombardier or, or have different positions. Uh, where the women, if they washed out, their bed was rolled up and they were sent home. Uh, so it, it was a different experience for these washouts. But, you know, some legitimately were washed out. You know, most were legitimately washed out because of, of different different causes. But that percentage... Um, was was really based on what was going on in the war and expectations like that. That's both fascinating and heartbreaking. <laughs> the idea that that we're basically replacing people. I think that's an important point that we were replacing people, right? I mean, that's that's what was going on in the war. Is you were you were expanding the number of pilots we had, right, uh, in combat, but especially in 1943, before that. The, the P-51 saves lives, right, that aircraft, um, because it can take the bombers all the way into Germany, you know, and protect them. But before the P-51 was ready to go with those long-range tanks, um, we, we had a lot of pilots who were being lost, and, and we had to replace them. And the main purpose of the WASP was to release men to, from domestic flying so they could go and fly in combat. Uh, it was it was a, a war. It was for the war. You know, it wasn't it wasn't just an experiment to see what women could do. It was an experiment to see what women could do, so men could go and fight. Uh, and and that I think is an important thing. You know, these women are very fun and very cool, and and it has been a joy to study them for the last twenty years. But but they have to be put into perspective of what their purpose was, um, and that's to replace men uh, and to release men who, who could go and fight and die, basically. 
Okay, I know this is a very downer place to end this episode. (laughs) It's such an important note, though. The Wasp were really, really incredible. They were hugely dedicated. They worked incredibly hard. They broke a lot of new ground for women in both aviation and in the American Armed Forces. But really, all of this came about because the men who had been doing those jobs were first needed elsewhere. And a lot of times it was because the people who had been doing those jobs elsewhere had been killed in the line of duty. So I know it's a sad place to pause for the day, but we're going to have lots more to talk about in our next episode on Wednesday. So from here, Tracy's fabulous interview gets into what sort of work the WASP actually did once their training was over. And so that's going to be for next time. Uh, and we will pick up with the work that they did ferrying planes and people, as well as towing targets for practice with live ammunition. But for right now, Tracy, do you have some listener mail for us? I do. I have listener mail from Amy, and she writes to us actually about two episodes, one that you researched and one that I researched. So I'm going to read the whole thing. And uh, Amy says, hello, Holly and Tracy. I've been listening to the podcast for about a year and love what you do. Thank you for your time and effort in researching these interesting topics. I'm writing about two different podcasts. First, on Sir Isaac Newton. When I was studying physics, my professor told the class a story about his early years. A poignant tidbit that stood out to me was the oddness of his childhood home, specifically the matriarch of the family. I think it was his grandmother, but it may have been his mother, boarded up the windows in the house to avoid paying additional taxes, which were, at the time, based on the number of windows a home displayed. So not only was he isolated, but his home was always dark. My professor indicated that this may have contributed to his eccentric behavior later in life. Second, on Catherine Dexter McCormick. She is one of my heroes, and I was thrilled to see your podcast about her. I attended MIT and lived in McCormick Hall in 2004 during the 100th anniversary of Catherine's graduation from MIT. It is a gorgeously decorated and outfitted home on the shores of the Charles River. The design of the dorm was extremely deliberate based on Catherine's wishes. There are several large living rooms on the main floor, the green room and the brown room, which contain pianos and beautiful antique furniture. Many of these pieces of furniture belonged to Catherine and were used to smuggle contraception into the country. There was also a dining hall in the building, which Catherine insisted upon so that the women living in the dorm did not have to cook their own meals each night before classes in the morning. McCormick Hall is the only single-sex dorm left on campus as a memorial to Catherine and her efforts for women's suffrage and women's health and to MIT's dedication to advancing women in science and engineering. Uh, And then she goes on to thank us and to suggest some more episode topics. Thank you so much, Amy. That's such a great great note. It is. We've had a few folks write in who either uh, went to MIT or are from their surrounding area and wrote in with personal details about, uh, about McCormick Hall, but this is my favorite one. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And we're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. If you want to come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, you can put the word airplane into the search bar. You will find all sorts of information about airplanes, how they work, the history of a- aviation, lots of great stuff. You can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where you will find show notes. You will find an archive of every episode that we have ever done. In terms of today's episode, there will be lots of links to places where you can see pictures and learn a lot more about the women Air Force service pilots. So you can learn all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 